this present age, the, the time in which God is going to bring forth his justice on a world that has rejected him, a world that stands in rebellion to him. It is a time that we anticipate, um, not with joy in the sense of destruction, but we do anticipate it with joy in the sense of God's holy name being exalted, righteousness being exalted, and his accomplishments of upholding all that is right and good being exalted, and the ushering in of his eternal kingdom. As we come now this morning to the fifth seal, we'll be looking at verses 9 through 11. And we're going to be reminded here that faithfulness to Christ in a world that hates him comes at a cost. There's a a price to remain true to Christ and true to his word in a godless society. Now, of course, the events here that we've argued that are coming, are future, that are coming upon the world. And that means that the experience of God's church here, though it includes persecution, that the experience of God's church here, though it includes discipline and judgments that we see uh, occasionally upon the world, are but a foretaste of the intensity that's going to come in this future age, a time when the restraint of God upon the wickedness of man will be removed and lessened, and the evil that is in man's heart will be given more rise to its expression on the face of the earth. And part of the sufferers of that expression will not only be mankind in general, but particularly those whom God calls to himself during that time. So while this time that is before us here is future, the principle is the same both then and now. And it's this, that the more wicked a society becomes, the more believers are a threat to it and will experience persecution and experience its hostility. The more godless a society becomes, the more, the more of a threat are those who are bear the light of the Lord among it. The more dark a people become, the more threatened they are by the light. That's just how it is. That has been the history of the world since the fall of man. And the response isn't that we take up arms. It isn't that we form uh, isolated societies. It isn't that we retreat somewhere or that we run to the battle with swords in our hands. It is for the church a reality or a reminder of the reality that the more godless a society becomes, the more she can expect to be persecuted for her faithfulness to Christ. But it is a persecution in which we don't face it alone, but God himself and the life of Christ in us upholds his people to be faithful to the end. That is part of the proof of salvation. Well, with that in mind, read with me verses 9 through 11, and then we'll consider this seal more closely. Beginning in verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Well, this is a simple outline following these verses. I want to notice this morning the persecuted people first in verse 9, and then a passionate plea in verse 10, and then a pacifying comfort in verse 11. Let's look first at the persecuted people in verse 9. He says, when the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain. This now is the first seal, the first four, as we spent some time looking at, or what are known as the four horses of the apocalypse. They are the four initial judgments that mark the beginning, as uh, this does as well, of the first uh, half of the week of the tribulation period, seven years of God's unique judgment on the earth. What is unique about this fifth seal after the revelation of the four horsemen is that it is an unmediated vision. It is no longer the four creatures calling forth a horse and its rider to unleash judgment on the earth. This is now an unmediated vision in that sense. And what does he see? He sees those under an altar who have been slain for the testimony of Christ. 
It is an unidentified number of saints. But the first thing that our attention is drawn to is the location of these saints, and it's striking, as is every element of this vision. Where are they located? He says, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain, underneath the altar. What's striking about this is that we would expect the term to be thrown before the throne or with God at the throne. The idea of throne has dominated the last two chapters, chapters 4 through 5, when we were immediately thrust into the throne room of God. We saw the angels before the throne. We saw the elders before the throne. We saw the living creatures before the throne. We saw worship emanating towards the Father and towards the Son who are on the throne. And yet here... It's not a throne, but an altar that comes to our attention. Now, what is this altar that he is referring to? Well, I can say just right up the front, it's not, as some uh, explain it to be, an altar in the earthly Jerusalem temple still in the first century A.D. That is our preterist brethren who want to see all of these things fulfilled in 70 A.D. That is not the case here. This is a future event that he is looking forward to. So there are really only two possibilities about this altar. There are only two possibilities for this altar. It could be a bronze altar located that was, is reflecting the altar that was located in the courtyard of the temple and the tabernacle area. It was the first thing you saw when you entered into that area. It stood before the tabernacle or the temple before you entered into the holy, of, the holy place and then the holy of holies. It is there on this bronze altar that these sacrifices were laid once they had been offered up by the priest. And the blood of that sacrifice was then poured at the base of the altar. You can read about that in the law. That's one possible uh, possibility for the imagery here. The other is of the golden altar of incense. The golden altar of incense was located inside the tabernacle or temple proper. As soon as you entered into that structure, you were in what is called the holy place. There was the table of showbread. There was the lamp that was always burning. And there was before the veil that separated the two rooms, a golden altar of incense that was constantly burning and letting out the fragrance that God had ordained for that time. So those are the two options. If it is the bronze altar here, then the imagery is of this, that the blood of the saints who are underneath this altar are representing their blood poured out at the foot before the Lord. In this case, it is a picture of their lives given as a sacrifice to God, laid down in their, for their faithfulness to God. It was an act of worship to the Lamb. You can certainly see reflections of this later in the book of Revelation uh, I'll just read it for you, chapter 12, verse 11. It says, And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives even unto death. Certainly would reflect those who are located here. And so it's very possible that the idea here is that as they laid down their life, as they shed their blood, as they did not love their life to the end, they proved their lives as a sacrifice, as a as a, as a means of worship to God, of faith in Him, and that's the picture. The other, if it is the golden altar of incense, then the imagery is of the prayers of the saints, which we'll look at next, who are gathered before the Lord awaiting an answer. This is also possible. In fact, the golden altar of incense is mentioned several times in the book of Revelation as gathering the prayers of the saints. We met with it in verse Eight of chapter 5, that there were these uh, living creatures and the 24 elders who fell down before the Lamb, and they were holding harps and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. He's going to mention it in chapter 8, verse 3, that an angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him that, so that he might add to it the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the Lord, and there are other mentions as well. Which one is it? Well, it's possible to see it as either altar, and there's really no need to be overly specific here. He's not, in giving this vision, he mentions simply the altar, and the imagery here fits both of those scenes. It may be possible to see it as a combination of both ideas. Again, they're both present. These are blood of the saints that was spilt. They are beneath the altar where the blood was 
support in the Old Testament. They are offering to the Lord of heaven and earth prayers, prayers for justice, prayers for his judgment to come, prayers that are being gathered before him that will be answered as we go throughout the vision of John in the book of Revelation. But in either case, the essential point is this. Is no, the essential point of the scene is to note the presence of these saints before the Lord, having been faithful to him to the end. To the end. So what is the primary description here to notice? It's this. He saw them underneath the altar, the souls of those who had been slain. The souls of those who had been slain. The souls of those who had experienced a violent death. I want to just draw your attention just briefly here to the idea that he refers to them as the souls, the souls. What is the soul, suke? You're familiar with that word. What does it mean to say the souls of men? Is he talking about disembodied spirits? Is he talking about some ghost kind of figure? What does he mean by this? Well, the idea of the soul has a lot of nuances in Scripture. One basic lexicon says as one definition, that's the seat and center of the inner man, or that it refers to personhood. And here, the idea of saying their souls, their sukos, are before, under the altar, is to draw attention to the character of their life, the center of their redeemed life as they died for the Lord. It's not unlike what Jesus called, when he made a call for discipleship in Luke chapter 9, when he says, whoever loses his life, there the term is suke, for my sake, he is the one who will save it. It was the character, one who, who gives up the entirety of their existence in this world, all of their own self-pursuits for the sake of the Lord. Here it is the idea of those who have done that, and it's identified as the souls of those who are before the Lord. I just want to make again one more footnote here because it is often a part of the discussion of this particular verse is what does this mean then as far as the intermediate state? Well, we don't want to press the details too far. We're not meant to do that. And in fact, Scripture is largely silent on the intermediate state, largely silent. There really isn't a lot of information that God has given us about this time, but what he has given us is encouraging and is glorious and is reflected here. We do know that there is some kind of physical existence between those who die now and between the final resurrection, which even these saints have not yet experienced. We do know that when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, that the disciples immediately recognized Moses and Elijah with him. We do know that Jesus said to the thief who died on the cross next to him that he had redeemed that today you will be with me in paradise. We do know that Paul said that it's very much better to depart and to be with the Lord. We do know that he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that he did not want to be unclothed and be found naked, but clothed, that is to have his resurrection body, but nonetheless to be absent from the body on this earth is to be present with the Lord. So we know there's an immediate sense that believers have of being in the presence of the Lord. It is a conscious reality, and it has some kind of corporal existence. But beyond that, we can't say that much. What we can say is that those that are here identified have those characteristics. They are near the Lord. They are conscious. They have conscious. They have some kind of physical reality, though it isn't defined. Some see the fact that they are given robes to put on as evidence of that. But they are near the Lord. They're not a ghost. They're not a disembodied, they're not in some disembodied state. They're not some floating spirit. They are immediately with the Lord. They are near the Lord. They are in his presence. And what is interesting here is they have, much like the rich man in the parable in Luke chapter 16, they have some kind of awareness of what is going on on earth. They're aware that their blood has not yet been avenged. They're, they're aware that there is yet justice to be enacted for what they have suffered. But probably more importantly, and definitely more importantly here, is that they have been slain. They're recognized as those who have been slain. The same language that was used to speak of the the violence of men and the forced deal in Revelation 6, 4, of those, the civil unrest and the, the open sort of hostility and aggression and murder that will be present on the earth during this time. 
Most significantly, it is, it is a picture of that which Christ himself bears in heaven as he is the lamb who was slain. It speaks of his violent death. Here, it's a term used to refer to these. They were slain. It is simply to say this, that they were violently killed. There may be some connection here with these. Certainly there are going to be later. It's going to be later in chapter 7 of those who have, will be identified in Revelation chapter 20, those who were beheaded. We're not totally unfamiliar with that, even in the 21st century. We've seen beheadings. You can go on YouTube and see those who died at the hands of Islamic extremists being beheaded. It's a bloody ordeal. Maybe that's the case here. But nonetheless, they died. It was a bloody death. It was a violent death. It was a result of the world's hatred of them. Now, these are probably those, again, who are coming out of the first part of Daniel's 70th week of the seven-year period. These are to be extinguished, though certainly added to the number that will come uh, in contact with in chapter 7 of those who come out of the, the great tribulation. These are those who have been caught up in this rising hatred against Christ and this rising kingdom of the Antichrist as his authority is accumulating, accumulating and will reach its climax in chapter 13, but it's certainly present here. And it's not only in the future. Indeed, this is a more intensified sense. But John said in 1 John chapter 4 that the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, is already in the world. So this is a powerful picture of faith, yes, of these in the future. But it's also what many are enduring and displaying even now in all our culture. It's, it's, what, it's what the church can expect. It's what God's people can expect as the culture becomes more secular and as the culture becomes more opposed to the truth of God, the very idea of God, as the culture becomes more and more ensnared in wickedness and darkness. And it is just a filling up then of the hatred of the world for Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. Paul said it this way in Colossians 1.24. He said that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What does he mean by that? Certainly there was nothing lacking in Christ's afflictions in terms of his providing atonement. It's the once-for-all sacrifice. What does he mean to say that he's filling up in the persecutions that Paul underwent and that believers went what is lacking in Christ's affliction? It is to say this. There is a measure of hatred by a fallen world at hostility to God that is yet to be filled up. And it's going to be filled up as it is expressed against God's people. So the hatred of the world against God as it was revealed in the crucifying of the Son of God on the cross still has more to go. His death was atoning. His death was ultimate. His death is the foundation for our salvation. And yet to participate in his life, to take of his salvation, is to also say that we're taking on the world's hatred for him. And in that sense, filling up what is lacking in Christ. Jesus constantly, as you're well, well familiar with, we won't spend a lot of time on this, but I will remind you, he constantly is reminding his disciples that this is what we can expect. He says in John 16, before he was going to be crucified, these things, he says, now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have uh, my joy. Excuse me, chapter 16, verse 18. If the world hates you, he says, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. That's just how it is for God's people. There is a hostility between who God is and who the world is. And this is just a reminder then for us that the call to faith is a call to completely identify with Christ. It's a matter of losing our life for his. And, and I would note here that this is the tragedy of those who present the gospel that minimize repentance toward Christ. That minimize repentance toward Christ. This is not an insignificant thing. This is not a small issue. This is not a, a side, isolated issue somewhere in Christendom. It is at the very 
part of one of the tragedies of the representation of the church in the world today that it minimizes this reality. We have churches with thousands of attenders within 10 or 15 square miles of us who would fall into this category. There is a cost to following Christ. There is a cost to following him that we take on when we repent. There is a great tragedy to minimize sin's reality. To present a gospel that is designed to be more acceptable by the world and not offend its sensibilities. Or to appeal to individual felt needs. The cross is to fully take on the identity of Christ and to die to self. We sing this, don't we? Oh, the wonderful cross, oh, the wonderful cross bids me come and die and find that I may truly live. We shouldn't be surprised. One noted this, and I'm going to quote. In light of Jesus' teaching, what is surprising is not that Christians have been persecuted and killed all throughout the annals of human history, but that so many have not been. Shouldn't be surprised, as Peter said to the readers in 1 Peter, when hostility comes, we should be surprised when it doesn't come. We should be surprised that we live such comfortable lives in a world that so hates the Christ that we love and claim and serve. Now, what are the reasons for this hatred? What are the reasons for this hatred? Well, he lists them. He lists them. He lists the reason that the world is so offended by believers. He says, in the middle of verse 9, that these are those who have been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they have maintained. Now, those, these are distinct realities. They are inextricably bound as a single description of what it means to be a faithful believer. Because of the word of God, that is to say, because of their trust in and standing on Scripture as God's truth, as the authoritative word from God, as the sufficient word from God. Because of their testimony is to say because of their obedience to scripture and the totality of life, which certainly includes their proclamation of that word to a godless society. In both of these things, in both their trust and their obedience and their proclamation, they bear witness to the word of God. They bear witness to the work of Christ and the rule of Jesus Christ. And for that, the world hates them. For that, the world utterly rejects them. Yet, that is the mark of faithfulness. Again, I want to note that increasingly, faithfulness to Christ and standing on his word puts us at odds with the world. To publicly make these kind of statements puts one in the category in today's cultural climate of a religious fanatic or a fundamentalist who seeks to impose their religion on society. We have a speaker of the house in our own nation who is unashamedly, I don't know his personal life, I'm not vouching for him, but I am saying that he unashamedly says that his worldview is based on the Bible and that is the most offensive, anger-producing thing he could say in our present culture and political climate. In fact, those are the attacks, that he is a radical, that he is a hater of humanity, that he is evil and that he is an extremist, and primarily because his worldview does not support two fundamental loves of those in our society who have so much power and leadership, and that is this. He doesn't support the slaughtering of babies in a mother's womb, abortion, and he doesn't support transgenderism in the LGBTQ movement. And for those reasons, he is a radical and he is evil. One person caught this idea well, and I'm going to quote. It's not going to be up on the screen, so you'll just have to listen. He says this, One of the great ironies of this life is the fact that humans find so many ways to treat evil as though it is good and good as though it is evil. Some people agitate for wickedness. They are activists for God-despising, humanity-destroying, depression-causing activities such as legalized abortion, legalized marijuana, legalized child pornography, and homosexual quote-unquote marriage. And these people are viewed by the media and the culture as champions of virtue. Meanwhile, people who testify to God's truth are viewed as unloving, negative hate mongers who should be ashamed of themselves. The culture is not only called good, evil, and evil good, it is also succeeding in making this seem normal. The result is that if we are not careful, we will feel that they are right 
And, to, and the best thing to do is to keep our mouths shut, we think. Well, if we keep our mouths shut, we can play it safe. But if we open our mouths and speak the truth, then we fall in the same, under the same threat of those who are underneath the throne, who were slain because of the word of God and their testimony of Jesus Christ. And so in reading this, we must determine that the word of God is what defines our goals, our lives, our decisions, our hopes, our longings. We must determine whether we believe it is true in its testimony of God and of man and of Christ and of sin and of salvation and of the world and of the judgments to come. And if it is true, then we must be unashamed in what we declare about it. We must be clear on how this is going to inform our lives, our relationships, and all of our actions. These had made that, as many have do today and many have throughout the annals again of history, they made that decision and they paid the ultimate price, but they received the ultimate reward. But let's consider their cry. That's who is underneath there, those who did not love their life to death. That's the persecuted people who were faithful to the end. And what, what is it that here he wants us to see in this vision that is the, the passion of their heart, that is that what is, what is filling up their heart that they want to cry out to the Lord? Note then in verse 10, their passionate plea. It says, and they cried out with a loud voice and they said, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They cried out with a loud voice, a loud voice. This is a passionate plea. This is not a whisper. It's not a silent suggestion, but it's intense and it's passionate. And the first thing out of their mouth is, how long, O Lord? How long? Now, there's an element of holy complaint in this. There is. It's not unrighteous to have that when it's directed to the Lord in faith. In fact, you can find this same language on the words, on the lips of our Lord Jesus. He said as he was ministering among the people and he was confronted with their unbelief, and he says, how long shall I put up with this perverse and this evil generation? How long? How long shall I endure your unbelief? We see it at the lips of righteous sufferers throughout the Psalms. We could go to many places. Let me give you just a few. Psalm 74. Again, this is throughout the Psalms and Scripture and the prophets. In Psalm 74, he says this. Well, beginning in verse 9, we do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. How long, O God, will the adversary revile and the enemy spurn your name forever? How long are you going to put up with this? How long are you going to endure it? When are you going to bring justice? When are you going to bring an answer for this kind of prevalence of wickedness? Psalm 94.3. O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exalt? If you are the judge of the earth, if you are the one who upholds all righteousness, how long are you going to put up with this unrighteousness? How long are your people going to suffer how long will the ungodly seem to have the upper hand? How long? Look at what they turn to immediately after this cry. Acknowledge. They, they ground this cry and this complaint in the character of God. That's what I want you to see. In the character of God. They say, well, let's just say the nature and the character of God. How long, O oh Lord... Holy and true. How long, O oh Lord, holy and true? Again, in the terms of the language, it's interesting here. He doesn't use the term kurios, which is used for both the Father and the Lord throughout Revelation. He uses a word despotos, which we, you might think of despot in terms of English, but we don't want to make that jump immediately. But here he uses a term that refers to, it can refer to like the master of a house, but it often refers to God in the sense of his majesty and of his authority. 
It's a word that Jesus uses in his parables to speak of a slave-master relationship. It's referenced sometimes to Christ in the context of prayer and of God in the context of his rule over even the evil acts of men. You can remember Acts chapter 24 when they had suffered, some of his disciples, and it says this, when they had been released in verse 23, they went to their own companions and reported that all the chief priests and what all the chief priests and elders had said to them, and when they heard this, they lifted their voice to God with one accord, and they said, O Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and then they quote Psalm 2 and say, when will you judge them? And you will judge them, because they stand against Christ, your anointed one. So they're, they're calling here on the sense of God's absolute power, his authority as creator, as ruler, as judge of the earth. And they say, how long, O Lord, how long will the wicked prevail? How long will oppression run rampant through the earth? When will you judge them? And then he looks, they look at his character. Because you are holy and true. You are holy and true. Him who is holy and true can't stand this forever. These are attributes applied to Christ in chapter 3, verse 7. Here, holy is the fundamental attribute of God. We've looked at this and considered it. You're familiar with it. It has the idea of his otherness in one sense. He's separate. He's other from his creation. He's unique. He's, he's independent. He's not dependent on anything. He has life within himself, all power and glory and existence within himself. Everything else depends on him. He is holy. He's transcendent. He's other than his creation. He's separate from it. It also has to do with his moral purity, that he in him is light. There is no darkness at all. He is utterly separate and unique in his being, and he is absolutely holy and separate from all that is unholy, all that is sin. Sin is actually defined as that which opposes him, that which is lawless. Here he says, you are holy, God. How can you endure this any longer? And you are true. The idea of true here has the sense most likely of that which is in contrast to deceit, to what is false, to idolatry. One even said contrast to that which defines the kingdom of the Antichrist. In other words, they're saying, God, you have all authority and power over your creation. And you cannot look upon iniquity with favor. You must uphold justice. So how long must we wait? How long will you refrain, they say, from judging and avenging our blood? from those who dwell upon the earth. This isn't a cry for personal vengeance. It's a cry for the upholding of justice, of what is right and what is true. There's an echo here of the cry of Abel's blood, which Genesis 4.10 says, cried to the ground to God. What have you done, God says to Cain? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Why does it mean he's crying to him from the ground? It means simply this. It's crying out for justice as having suffered injustice because he was righteous, John tells us. That's why Cain murdered him, because his brother's deeds were righteous and his were evil. And so Cain murdered him out of anger and vengeance. It is an example of the conflict between the two seeds, the seeds of the woman, the seed of the serpent, a conflict that will run all the way through the end of the age to the end of Revelation. He says, your brother's blood is crying to me, God says, from the ground. Jesus picks up the same idea. Don't turn there. In Matthew 23, when he, when he says his woes against the leaders... He says to them, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. He says, you build, you honor prophets, you adorn the monuments of the righteous. You say, we wouldn't have killed them. We wouldn't have been at partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. He says, you testify against yourself that you're sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? I'm sending to you prophets, wise men, scribes, some you'll kill, some you'll crucify, some you'll scourge in your synagogue, some you'll persecute, so that 
Upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And the idea is this, that you stand in the line of the wicked, and so all of the blood spilt of the righteous from the very beginning all the way to the end is, going, is crying out for justice, and justice will be brought on you. It will not go unanswered. And so they're crying for justice in this same vein. How long, O Lord, will you refrain from judging and avenging? The idea of judge here has the idea, how long will you refrain from bringing them before you in your heavenly court to pronounce the sentence of guilty? How long will you in the second term from avenging, how long will you wait from afflicting the just penalty for their evil deeds? He says, among all those who dwell upon the earth, that is throughout Revelation, almost a technical term to refer to the unbelieving, those who are a part of the kingdom of the Antichrist, those who participated in these atrocities. Let me just note here, some struggle with this, don't they, over these kinds of statements. Do you know what they're asking for? They're asking for justice, but they're asking to say, I want them to be judged. When are you going to bring them to account and sentence them to hell? When are you going to bring them to account for their sins? And Christians struggle with this. Some stumble over these kind of statements. And consider this. That these here are representatives of saints who are in heaven. This isn't a cry of the flesh. It's not there. They're in the presence of God. Their bodies have been put to death. These are righteous souls before God. That they are made righteous. And they're crying out for God's vengeance on their enemies, again, which is essentially for their eternal destruction. And the reality is, is that this reminds us that we will glorify and praise God for his punishment of the wicked and unbelieving in heaven. We will delight in his punishment because it upholds his glory and we will see it as right. One said this, it's hard for us to understand the idea that part of the joy of heaven, speaking of this verse, was to see the punishment of the sinners in hell. Now we ask ourselves, and how can we reconcile this cry to the words of Christ who was on the cross and said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Or of Stephen, who when he was being stoned and saw a sight of Christ standing at the right hand of the Father, and he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. How do we reconcile this with those kind of statements? Or if Peter, who says this to suffering believers, that Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. How do we reconcile this? Well, two very simple and obvious ways. One, these saints are not on earth. They're not on earth. They're in heaven. They're, they're seeing this completely from God's perspective of the need to uphold justice. They're in the presence of God, and they are praying consistent with God's own stated purposes and attitude against the wicked. And that is to bring vengeance. We've looked at this. He'll say this in Revelation. Righteous are you. Who was and who were, O Holy One, because you judged these things, for they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets. They're getting what they deserved. This was anticipated even by the Apostle Paul in chapter 1 of Second Thessalonians. Just read it. This is a, he says, we speak God proudly of you, your perseverance in the midst of all your affliction. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. You will be considered worthy. He said, after all, verse 6, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. It is only just for God to deal out retribution to those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. These will obey the penalty of eternal destruction away from the Lord when he comes to be glorified in his saints. 
It's only just for God to do that. It's only right for God to do that. And so these here are reflecting God's own promises and God's own purposes for the wicked. They're saying, uphold your promise. Uphold your word. And in fact, even in the call for us to be patient and for us to wait on the work of God and his judgment, it is anticipating in fact that God will bring persecution and vengeance to those who persecute his people. Listen to what he says in Romans 12. Never take your own revenge, beloved. Why? You remember? He says, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. How can we be patient in the light of injustice? How can we not retaliate? Not because there is this sense of, well, it'll all just be gone away and God's too nice and God's too kind and God will uphold justice. It is because God's justice is far greater than ours could ever be. God's vengeance will be far more exact, far more full, far more righteous than ours could ever be. And so God says, look, that's my business. And his people say, okay, do it, Lord, and I'll wait for you to do it. Because it will be righteous when you do it. And it will be full and it will be complete. And it will be to your glory. If I take my own vengeance, it will be full of my own flesh. It will be incomplete. And I don't have the power to execute it fully and righteously. But you do. And so when they're praying this, this is completely within line with the will of God and the stated purposes of God and his own attitude. Secondly, it's just and it's right Because it is focused on God's own glory. It's not, again, personal vengeance. They're asking that God uphold his own glory, his own justice. He's asking that God hold accountable all of those who stand opposed to him. In the judgment against Babylon, wicked Babylon in 1820, this is the the words that go out. Rejoice over her, O heaven. And you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Why? Because in Revelation 19.2, the great harlot was corrupting the earth with her immorality. And so this cry reflects the idea of God upholding what is right and what is good and what is for his glory. And so there's two realities that exist in the heart of the righteous. And they exist, and if you're, you know this... And they exist side by side. In one part, in the heart of the righteous, there is this great longing for the salvation of men, for the salvation of people, for them to know the saving grace of God. And yet, at the other side, and at the same time, coexisting together, there is this longing for the judgment of the wicked and the justice of God to be enacted. And what binds both of these realities together is the deeper and more fundamental desire and longing that God be glorified in his creation. That his glory be exalted above all else because he alone is glorious, he alone is worthy to be glorified, and his glory is the highest possible good from all of creation. And so there's that longing as well. One put it this way, quote, the saint in glory does not desire personal vengeance any more than did Stephen, but he yearns for the coming of that great day when the majesty and the holiness, the sovereignty and the righteousness of God in Christ will be publicly revealed. Don't you know that longing if you know Christ? You want men to be saved. You want them to know the salvation of God. But there's something even more than that. The ultimate end of God's creation we have to come to grips with is not that all be saved, but that God be glorified. And that glory includes destruction, though it most wonderfully points to his salvation in Christ. But then note lastly here how he pacifies them. I'll just mention this quickly. It's a persecuted people who are faithful to the end. It's a call to be faithful. It's those who cry out for justice because that is a righteous desire of God's people that he be exalted in holding accountable all who oppose him. And then how does he pacify his people here? He says, it was given to each of them a white robe and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, 
also would be completed. How does he pacify them? How does he bring them comfort? First, he gives to each of them a white robe. Let me just note here for your own imagery that the robe is a long flowing robe. It is a, a beautiful robe. It fills up their whole body, but most significantly is a white robe. White throughout the revelation looks to the purity of Christ. It looks to the righteousness of Christ in which the, with which the, the saints are clothed. It refers to the righteous deeds of the saints. Here it has this idea. It is to comfort them in their salvation, those who have endured faithful to the end. He's comforting them. Their salvation is secure. He comforts them. And then he reminds them that he will uphold it in his own timing. And it's, inter it's wonderfully personal. Look at how he interacts with them. He gives them this white robe. And look what he says in verse 11. And there was given to each of them. Look at how personal that is. This isn't detached. This isn't as just a general group where he throws out white robes and they all fall on people. No, God is dealing with them individually. And this is the comfort of his people. It's this intimacy of God, even in their suffering, this intimacy of God, even in their reward, this intimacy of God in Christ who has saved them. And it's an intimacy that didn't just begin at this point. It's an intimacy really in the heart of God that began before he created anything. When he had a set number of elect whom he knew by name that he knew he would redeem for himself, a set number that he would call into this kind of fellowship, it's individual, it's personal. Jesus said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. This is true for all of his children. But notice here what he said. He gave them a white robe, it was personal, it was comforting their salvation. And then he says, you should rest for a little while longer. The idea here is you shall find refreshment, rest in your salvation. Don't be anxious or worry. Later he'll say in chapter 14 that those who are faithful to the end are to rest from their labors for their deeds follow after them. They put in their work, they died the death that they were called to die, and now they should rest. But they should rest until the time is fulfilled where the rest of their brethren are killed. And here I just point out this, that God works on his own timetable. God has an elect. That means before the foundation of the world, God had an exact number in his mind of those he would redeem. He knew it exactly, he knew it precisely, and he knew what he would accomplish. It wasn't random, it wasn't a possibility, it wasn't seeing who was going to believe. It means he chose an exact number he would call to himself. It also means that he chose exactly how he would glorify himself in that number. And here it means he chose exactly and knows how many he has ordained before the foundation of the world would die and would suffer for the gospel. God has what is sometimes referred to as a meticulous sovereignty. It means it reaches down into the details of his rule over his creation to accomplish his purposes. God had a set limit of the iniquity of the Amorites in Genesis 15, 16 before he would bring judgment. God has a set number of Gentiles in this present age that he will save before he turns to Israel. Do you realize there is one last person to be born that will mark in God's own timetable that when they are saved, then he'll move on to the next? He has an exact number of Jews he will save and call to be his witnesses during the tribulation. We'll look at that in Revelation 7. God has an exact number of days that the Antichrist will be allowed to persecute his people in Revelation 13. An exact number of days. And here he says, I have an exact number of your brethren yet to be killed. And it's not until they are killed that I will execute my justice. But then I will. It's interesting. Let me point you back to verse 9. And I want to close with this as we come into the table. It's a reminder, of course, of God's sovereignty. But, but I want to show you that God answers this prayer. God answers this prayer. And I want you to look at verse 9 again, this idea of the altar. Because this, alt, this idea of the theme of the altar runs throughout uh, Revelation. Many times, I won't run through all of the verses, it is from the altar that the voice of the angel or the judgment of God through an angel goes out from the altar, standing from the altar of God. And then there's, he executes his judgment. This is the first usage of it. But the final usage of it brings it all together, this whole section together. 
And I want to end there. It's in chapter 16, and he says this. Verses 5 through 7. And this is related to the fourth bowl judgment. He says, And I heard an angel of the water saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, we read part of this earlier, O holy one, because you judge these things, for they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you've given them blood to drink. They deserve it. Verse 7, And I heard the altar saying, and here the altar is personified. And it is itself speaking in this vision. And the altar is saying what? Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And it is then that the remaining bowls begin to be poured out. And it shows this. That the persecution of the righteous is not an end, the end of the story. And it's not an end in itself. And it means that wickedness does not have the final say. That God will uphold what is right. He will uphold what is good. He will uphold what is just. Christ will return. His kingdom will be established. And God's people are called only to this one thing. Faithfulness. Be faithful. Be faithful to the end. Be faithful to his word. Be faithful to his kingdom. Be faithful to his testimony. Be faithful no matter what it costs. And know this, that God has determined for each of those who are in his kingdom exactly what he has required from them. What he has for them. One said this, I don't remember where it was, I heard a long time ago, that we are immortal until we're finished with his work. We are immortal until we're finished with his work. And so we can go with courage. And we can remember here to set our priorities that this... This is the character of the world. Let us not be, as that one author reminded us, lulled into the sleep and into passivity and into compromise with a world that we have to understand at its heart, though God has much restraining grace, at its heart hates righteousness. And so let us not be ashamed to speak what is true for God, to stand on his word and say, it's true, it's what God has said, it's what I stand on, and I will unashamedly declare it. And conform my life to it. And let us be encouraged as we take these elements as well. That God is reminding us that we are forever united with him. That his kingdom is coming. His salvation is real. And we will one day be with him even as we sing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you 